Prowler Resents, ProwlerResents.com. This is Adam Spiegelman. Just talked to Matt Hannon, a.k.a. Samurai Cop, the star of the movie. He's in my living room. We just did an hour interview. He's a really nice guy. A lot of stuff about the movie. We learned about what his life is like before the movie, working for Stallone as a bodyguard. And Samurai Cop's criminal past. He's very open and frank, Frank Stallone, about decisions he made in his life and what it's like now that there's Samurai Cop 2 coming out. So you can buy Samurai Cop if you haven't seen it. It's fantastic. You can go on our website. You can buy a Blu-ray. And then donate to the Kickstarter campaign for Samurai Cop 2. All that information is at proudlyresents.com slash Samurai Cop. All right. Hope you enjoyed the interview. How would you describe Samurai Cop to people who haven't seen it? Um, what it was intentionally was supposed to be was just a buddy action cop movie. Um, kind of loosely based on the lethal weapon type of you know genre, uh-huh. and, and what it's become it is is an unintentional uh, comedic masterpiece. Just because of, and you know what a good example of that is somebody, <clears throat> uh, Greg had sent me a link of uh, some other podcast. I don't know who it was, and their group was watching the trailer for Samurai Cop, so they'd never seen it before. Uh-huh. They watched it, and it was done. One of the girls says, oh, man, that looks like a great comedy. And the guy goes, no, you don't get it. It's not a comedy. And she went, what? And they were floored, and then they rewatched it, and then it just it takes on a whole different, you know, like viewing yeah. experience. And that's kind of what it, I mean, it's just not what you expect. Once you get into it and realize what it is, then it just becomes, you know, a farce where everybody just really has a fun time with it. So what were you doing before? Because according to the lore, is that you were Stallone's bodyguard? Is that... Yeah, I had uh, worked with Sly probably from, I think I started with him in April of 88, and then I stopped around November 89, and then I did that American Revenge, I don't know if you've seen anything on that one. Oh, yeah. yeah, Another low budget. And then uh, a couple months off, and then right to a mere June of 90. How did that that come come about? Voyo Gorick, he was one of uh, Sly's bodyguards too, and he apparently had worked with Amir Shervan, the director of uh, Samurai Cop, and he said, Matt, you should go see this director. You know, as a young actor, you need to get tape. And so I just went into his office, and and the minute I walked in, he was just like, oh, you're perfect. You're exactly what I'm looking for. And I was flattered, you know, as an actor. I'm like, really? I get the whole movie? And (laughs) you know, you're just looking for a line here, line there. Yeah, yeah. And... uh, so that's it. I mean, basically, he gave me the script. Says, take a look at it. We're going to shoot. I think it was like a week later. Did you have any acting experience? No. I mean, I had done stuff in, in high school, and of course, at that age, twenty-seven, I thought I was you know, ready for the world. Yeah, please. <laughs> I mean, the worst acting performance ever. Which I've told a lot of people in interviews. That should have been kind of like what we would consider an apprentice learning experience. But uh-huh. to have to carry a whole film, and then of course, obviously, there was problems with the dialogue and. And, and, and I had issues with that. But then, yeah, just the acting. You would have loved to have playback or at least looked at some of the stuff you were doing and go, oh, wait, I can do that better. Was it one take? Is that why there's yeah. no... Yeah. <laughs> because Amir, he really... And, you know, hats off to him. He, he had a very, very low budget and he just didn't have the film to, right. to do it again. So that's why all we were focused on, and you can kind of see that in a lot of the movie, is just making sure we knew our lines. So I'm more or less reading lines or Amir has coached me how to say them. Just uh-huh. because, you know, later in looping, he didn't want to go, well, I don't remember what you said that day. We've got to try to match. Because sometimes he wouldn't have stuff mic'd. He was stealing a lot of shots. Oh, really? So, you know, if we improvised, then it's like, well, what'd you say that day? Or, yeah. You know, so we really, really stayed verbatim to that script, everything that was said. What it's, scenes did you steal? Do you remember? 
Um, that shot when I'm uh, after I go to see her in church in mm. Beverly Hills. We were shooting out of a van. Uh-huh. Um, the opening sequence when you first see me with the hat on and the wig in I, front of the police station yeah, yeah, so, was stolen. And there's a cop standing right there. In front, <laughs> but they just assumed in the, the the magic of a mirror, he would tell them if they asked him. He'd say, oh, we're here with the Hunter production. We're second unit and we're filming. And they'd say, okay, no problem. And is there a Hunter? They just no, made it up. He just knew what was going around. <laughs> so he was a, just a master at bluffing his way through those situations. We got stopped out in the wilderness, fight scenes by park rangers. And he just always had an answer. Oh, that's great. And they they just as long as he said something, they were okay. Yeah. Yeah. Or they would kind of think, ah, it doesn't seem like, you know, what you're telling me is true. Go ahead and shut down. They would never take his, you know, footage. But uh-huh. but that's what we started seeing and thinking, oh, man, I thought this was on the up and up. And apparently we don't have permits. <laughs> so that's what we all slowly got exposed to. and then just So you didn't know it was kind of a cheesy production? No, because in the very first couple of days, we had, a, you know, a sound guys and lighting and, and a script girl, you know, uh-huh. even though for the script, it's like, really? We want to make sure we say this crap, right? <laughs> um, so, and then, but as it went on, it just slowly, his budget dwindled, dwindled. And then pretty soon he had, you know, just me, Mark, and the cinematographer, Peter, you know, the camera. And that was it. Uh-huh. So so what about, I am obsessed with the, the wig part. So what yes. happened? So you have long hair. Yeah. And you have long hair now, and you had long hair in the movie. And But when you watch the opening scene, sometimes you're wearing a woman's wig. Yeah. And then you're back. So what happened? We finished uh, filming August, I would say. We started in June. And originally he said three weeks. So mm-hmm. we didn't really finish till August. And it's not every day. He would take a week off sometimes. For what? For money? To, yeah, that or go watch daily, see what he had. Um, and then he would call us up and say, hey, okay, I'm ready. Come back. And we uh-huh. would just pick up wherever, you know, we never knew what we were going to shoot. So uh, I think around November, he had represented that the film was done. And we had gone and done some of the post, you know, dubbing and looping lines. And he said, all right, you know, that's it. We're done. Thank you. And I said, okay, as soon as you can, let me have a copy because I need to, you know, get my stuff out. So three months went by. And then he called me in January of 91. And he says, Matt, I need to see you. I came into his office. And of course, my hair is just short. Real cut when short. did you cut your hair? What was it? Probably right after he said we were done because my agent said, okay, you've done that film now. You have that look with the long hair. And now I can't keep sending you out on, you know, because you get really limited of what you could actually go out for with long hair. You know? right. Like I said, Tarzan or uh, like I'm son of Rambo I've mentioned before. I mean, it's just no one had that then. Or you weren't taken serious. There's a couple actors, Joe Lara, I don't know if you're uh-huh. familiar. Sure. He had the similar look, and a guy named Malibu that was on that Gladiators. Uh, <laughs> right, you could be the Gladiator. So, you know what I mean? We all were going out on these same auditions, and oh, I thought, funny. okay, let me change the look up a little bit. And, and I really wanted to do comedy anyway, so uh-huh. I, didn't, well, I wasn't looking to do action. But um, So I cut it short, took some new photos, life was going on, then Amir called, guy goes see him, he flips out. You know, what have you done? You fucked up my film. I go, what are you talking about? You said we were done. So... Oh, well, we're not. So he just immediately threw me in his car and we drove to Hollywood and Vine and he went to a wig <laughs> shop and he picked out what he thought was the closest to my hair, which was like, ah. Oh. So at the time, I didn't think much because I thought, okay, maybe he just wants to do a couple long distance pickup shots. Right, like at the end, like when you're but fighting you or see something. see the movie, I mean, Jesus. I mean, that's the opening shot is me in a hat and a wig. And then all the way through the movie, almost every other shot is maybe it's my hair on one close up cut to another reaction shot it's the wig um, yeah. i mean it was just <laughs> what is his reaction to that like no one will notice or i, I gotta, don't know I I, that's why i really wish that he was alive and i kind of broached that question to peter the other night at a screening i said what was amir thinking Did, you know yeah i mean he should have either i understand his anger and outrage you know you fucked up my film but on the other hand you did say we were done and i mean how long do i 
There's a better way to do it, keep too. Keep the look. And, and then I started to really think, wow, look at all this footage there was. And he either, A, was ill-prepared on shot selections, or he just was uh, obsessed with close-ups. And You know what I mean? Oh. I mean, you really look at the film, there's a ton of close-ups with me with that wig on. It's like, really? Was that necessary? <laughs> so, so, you know what I mean? I got over that thinking it was my fault and I ruined his film. But then as we've all watched the movie, there's so many other production flaws, not yeah. so much talent. Um, you know, where I was orange, basically. I mean, the color's off. Uh, yeah. The fight scene starts off in the summer and it ends in the fall. I mean, you can look at the foliage. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? There's no continuity. So, whatever. I think that adds, obviously, to the magic of what it's become. Yeah, it's, it's kind of perfect that way. That, but, that yeah, happened. for me as an actor, how am I going to show that? <laughs> what is that your hair? Well, what's oh. your reaction? When did you see the film finally? Um, he finally got me, I think, after we finished that. I would say, I don't know, maybe a year later, June of 91, I finally got a VHS copy with a time code on the bottom that he uh-huh. gave me, which was fine. I said, all right, now I'll try to pick out some scenes that I think I could use as an actor. I mean, you've, you've seen the movie all the way through. Oh, yeah, a couple of times. There's a couple monologues that I have. You know, obviously, I'm telling you son of a bitches. Yeah, I look in the restaurant. Yeah, and, and now obviously I couldn't use that because that was a big issue, and, and I've discussed that with people. I, I told Amir, this is not the way, you know, we would say it. He was Iranian, so I figured, oh, he doesn't So he understand. wrote the script. Yeah, and it's all his words, and uh-huh. I would say we wouldn't say that. We would say, I'm telling you sons of bitches. He goes, no, 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 say it. And I go, I know, but I'm just telling you it doesn't translate right. That's not... Just say it the way I wrote it. I mean, he was very, <laughs> and of course, you want to be respectful. And I've said this before, a lot of us on set, you don't want to start being the prima donna. I will not say this. Right. I, I'm not going to say. So we basically just surrendered and said, all right, whatever you want us to do, we're going to do. But I, of course, started to get a little bit immature doing visual things during like the what? filming. Can we just see hand it? signals. If you watch me. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking to her up in the uh, helicopter and I'm doing like an Elvis Presley, like, oh, I'll see you later. <laughs> Fighting, I was tucking my finger. And this was jokes for the guys that were behind the camera because uh-huh. we never thought any of this was going to no. end up being seen. At some but of point. course, obviously, it does. So I was like later. a douchebag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so wait, you put your, this is people, you put your thumb inside In between your like the first, second thing. Yeah, you can't hit strike somebody like that. You'll break your thumb. Gerald Akamura, who was a master at like different arts, at, at which I wasn't. I knew how to fight and I had pieces. What MMA is now today is kind of what we did as bodyguards. Uh-huh. So I didn't have a particular style. You just knew how to strike people or kick or you know hurt them. Uh, but he would do a little kung fu motion and then Amir would go, Matt, you do the same. So I'd do like the rock and roll. So I'm doing my hands. You know what I mean? Just ridiculous things. Again, that adds to the character of the film. But um, we just tried to stay whatever Amir wanted, you know, that we did. And at the end, it was just Mark and I basically saying, all right, let's just get this done. Because, I mean, here we are. Now it's almost a year later and we're still shooting in a wig. And poor Mark and everybody else that showed up were like, what the hell is going on? And I said, welcome to my nightmare. So did you, so did you ever end up using any of that footage to show anybody? Um, I think the, the scenes that I kind of took out of it was pieces of the fight scenes if, uh-huh. if they were any good and there's a couple shots of mark and i coming out from behind the car you know when robert blows it up with a grenade um and there's some smoke that visually kind of looked good i was focused our eyes looked pretty good <laughs> i think the monologue that i do in fujiyama's house when he's got jennifer hostage at the very end uh-huh. when he shoots mark that was pretty good i mean it's not great acting but it was you know what i could salvage out of there so what happens to the movie? Does it get released? No, it never it never gets released. I don't know what happened, uh, and, and I actually wasn't upset about it, you know. And I, I I stayed in touch with Mark for a couple years, and then we lost touch. I gave him, you know, uh, a copy of the tape that I got from Amir, and then everybody kind of went their own way. But um, yeah, it never ever got released. It's only because of the internet and technology that it uh, stayed around, or, or people had a copy. I think of that old VHS. Yeah, for a while, tape. no one had the ri- the rights to it. 
it was just kind of no. floating around. Yeah, and there was a lot of urban myths that surrounded, you know, they found the, the print in a castle in Germany <laughs> or something. And, and what That's it really... not true? No. In a VCR it, in a castle? Yeah, somewhere. which is... I love that because yeah. it's like legend. But it turns out that Greg Hatanaka from uh, Cinema Epic was doing a completely different uh, film in a uh, studio in Hollywood. And it was like a storage facility. Uh-huh. His lead actress, apparently, uh, had come across this old cans of footage that said Samurai Cop on it. And she says, hey, look at this. Uh-huh. There were some posters that had some water damage. So apparently a mirror, either when he passed or he just had put all of the his films he'd done, a total of five, in just some storage vault and left them. So Greg just happened upon them. Oh, so it wasn't released? It wasn't on VHS Never, in the never 80s, got right? out, yeah, because Mamir never had the money to do it. I know we went down to the AFM here in, in Santa Monica, and um, he'd sold, I think, to a German filmmaker, maybe some rights, something like that, just you know, for distribution. But it just never got a theatrical release anywhere. And then Greg, once he found it, uh, restored all the negatives that were damaged, and, and it actually is that second version that you see on Amazon.com of Samurai Cop. It's a better quality, and he put a lot of money into it. And then now, obviously, the Blu-ray that he's restored with my full commentary and Mark's oh, and, and some interviews comes out, I think September 30th on, so, on Amazon. And you can get that on our website. And Oh yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's just nice that... No, no, it, just he, to, he, I'm doing a plug. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> I know I hate to do all that business. So, when did you first hear about this movie from fans? When did you first realize that this is out there because you probably forgot about it what did you want well to- no I, I i followed uh i think when my daughter was younger 10 um when when youtube first came about i i think i googled and i just thought homie to see and sound every day Pop. and then all of a sudden i saw the horny nurse scenes and the uh-huh. stuff of the stuff that you still stay up now and i thought oh man and i'd read the comments <laughs> and i would go what were the IMDb. comments like, like- just oh man, what a great movie! Or they would just be mocking every ridiculous. What scene. was your feeling when you saw that? You're I like, loved it because they were accurate. And I, yeah, this is dead <laughs> on. It was just a hilarious. The guys go, man, this lead actor looks like uh, Stallone with Down syndrome. Or, oh, no. And I'm just thinking that is perfect because you know I've always felt I don't think I'm that attractive, and I just thought that is dead on. Uh, they talk about my crazy faces and the eyes that I made and stuff. Because you, you know. knew you were goofing around. Well, no, some of that I think because Amir would be really intense. But again, <laughs> if I'm not seeing a playback, because I right. would have looked at it and went, "Oh, he should." I look like a, a guy that's just what, uh, what, what do they call that? Thorazine <laughs> wore out. He's flipping out. <laughs> Even on the Kickstarter promos I've seen, I'm like, "Oh my god!" But um, so yeah, I watched it from a distance, and then uh, IMDb uh, that guy named Matt Hannon uh-huh. that was the same as mine at that time had passed away, and everybody thought it was me. So I thought, "Oh, oh is cool. that what it is?" This is great. Everybody thinks I'm dead and I don't have to worry. Um, why, why is that? Why didn't you want the attention for it? Or you thought it was good for the mystique? Because or? I didn't realize there was this huge cult following. I just thought it was you know, something like, I don't want it. Because my name's completely different. I, uh-huh. I, I haven't been doing any acting for years. I do stand-up because that's a So lot your name different. on the email is their new name? Yeah, Caritas. Okay. Yeah, Matthew Caritas. Which is fine. Like Everyone's like, oh, don't tell us. Like, I don't care. Oh, but okay, I still yeah. sign autographs as Matt Hannon. You know, sure, that's what I... This is Caritas. <laughs> um, I've got so many names because I only did stand-up under the name of Brian Machiavelli. Too. That's I was like, oh no, what if a Brian McAnally comes over? <laughs> yeah, know. exactly. So and everyone's like, what's with all these aliases? You know, were you wanted by the FBI because I had a little checkered past? I'm like, no, I just didn't want my name uh, associated out because I'm I was before all this really private, so I didn't you know anybody knowing my name. It, it was just weird stuff. So I thought I'll just be a character, and the character that I did comedy Brian Machiavelli was somebody that I uh, had made up. So uh-huh. that's kind of how I separated both. But um, so eventually I kept. Uh, you know, writing on some of the comments, IMDb, hey, I'm alive and well, I'm out here. And they're like, yeah, right. You know, they thought yeah, it was yeah. bullshit. So uh, it turns out, I don't know how much time went by and my daughter's like, dad, 
you know, now she's like I said, 21, 22, you should let people know you're alive, that's the wrong guy. And I'm like, no, I don't want to, who cares, it's all right. She goes, no, because I think people really love this movie, they'd love to know. So I set that camera up, I don't know if you had saw uh, it. So in yeah, your living room. In, in my in kitchen. kitchen. I just, yeah. And now, of course, I'm by myself, shirt off, shorts, hanging around my house, and I thought, let me, so I did it, and then I sent it to my daughter and said, hey, take a look, if I do something, like you're asking me, is this what you would want me to do? Well, the minute she had it, she uploaded it. Oh, no. Because she's the one that set up my YouTube. I don't know anything how to use all this technology. I'm like an idiot dinosaur. <laughs> and then it just blew up. I mean, uh -huh. within hours, my Brian Machiavelli, I guess, is attached to that YouTube. Right. It just started getting hits, hits, hits. I mean, I clear 360 emails, and then six hours later, there'd be 420. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And Greg Hotnaka finally had contacted me through that, too. And then I just realized how, I mean, people from all over the world, I'm getting stuff from Germany, Costa Rica, Spain, I mean, just, and I'm thinking, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. So, and, and that's basically how I got, you know, pulled back into it. But I knew that, you know, they had talked to Mark Frazier and some of the other actors in interviews and Robert Zadar, but I had no idea that, you know, it would just green light so fast and it's like, nope, we got to do this now. And I was happy to do it because I'd love to do a, you know, a cop, a buddy cop thing with Mark again. And, and like we said, it's, it's a tough place to be. How do you duplicate what it was? What it, are you trying to make it good and see what happens? Or are you trying to make it I, bad? It's all in Greg's hands. And again, because I, I, I would have my comedic view and everyone, you can't do that. I would right. be like I was with Amir arguing about, I don't know why I'm having a love scene with, with, with Melissa when I'm supposed to be in love with Janice. Well, my, I'm thinking of the character. He's looking like a whore. And all Amir's looking is marketing. I got to sell sex overseas uh -huh. in the action. So, you know what I mean? You could have that conflict go on for days. So... But I think we all agree you can't duplicate or try to be uh, cognizant or aware, self-aware of what happened. Right. But there are little tricks that you can do with dialogue in different contexts. Um, we've talked about, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, for example, that lion head is such a prominent feature from yeah, the what first. Is that? How did that end up there? If, well, I'll get you to that. It, yeah. But I'm just saying, if you took that lion head in the new movie and just happened to have it in the background when People we walk in. People go crazy. The f original fans will get that. You yeah. see what I'm saying? To the new fan, it doesn't matter because you don't want to alienate. So, And that's just one example of a visual. But you could use different lines out of context. But that lion head, as you asked, was just in the house that Amir happened to be filming in. It was the lady's home that was on her wall. And for whatever reason, and I forgot to ask Peter Pellian, the cinematographer, the other night when we had a screening, was it his choice to frame every shot with Janice in it or was it Amir's? I don't know. But yeah. if you look at that shot, it's a white room and there's really nothing there. Maybe they thought, you know. The breaks of the wall. Exactly. So, you know. just they have the same hair, her and the lion. I don't know. My hair was like a hair movie. It's like, I don't get it. But yeah, just weird things like that have just really caught on with the fans. So What about the, the horny nurse scene? What was your feeling with Durant? Cause it's that, that was one of those um, scenes where Admir had said, if you don't like the writing, we can change it. And I basically said, this is kind of ridiculous dialogue. Do you like what you see? Do you want to tell? Oh, I do. You know, and I just said, are we really going to do? Oh, no, no, this is funny. He really thought it was funny. Oh. So it's not so much the verbiage, but it's just his, what he thought was American funny yeah. stuff. And yeah. again, I think Amir was exposed to a lot of the older um, American, you know, growing up. And so maybe he thought that was funny dialogue, but that was verbatim. Every single word, because I auditioned with that girl, and I can't remember what her name was, in uh, Amir's office. And I, have, I had said before, when she came in, he says, Matt, please go in the other room and practice and then come back. So when we went to this other room in Amir's office and we're reading it, the point where she says, all right, let me see what you got. She literally came and groped my 
just touched me and I'm like, oh, this is perfect. This, oh, I want to hire this girl. You yeah, know, this is going to be a great <laughs> shoot, you know. And beyond. And uh, so then we ended up at that urgent care facility. It's not even a hospital. He just went into an urgent care facility off Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood, asked if we could shoot a couple scenes. They agreed. And uh, that was the same. I mean, it's just, but we had to play it straight. You know, I can't act like I know I'm saying something stupid. So we went through it and it's just become a classic ridiculous you know par for the course scene of that movie which and just cuts the, the the cuts over to mark and <laughs> yeah yeah and that was a basically a mirror again and he would do that quite often he would uh if mark was standing like he was there and he knew later he'd need some reaction shots he would literally would say mark please come stand on the wall and react so mark has no idea what he's reacting so he's just to. saying react right so i'm behind mark doing goofy things you know laughing and, and then he just starts doing like i said he's breaking the fourth wall looking at the camera he's doing the old you know uh our gang alfalfa <laughs> you know so he was in on it and i'm just yeah. thinking dude this is and again that's probably i don't know two-thirds through filming so again we're more lightened up and we're just having fun with it um but you know amir for whatever reason, either he had no option, used those shots. So he's the filmmaker, he's making the choices, and it is what it is, but that's what makes it so beautiful. And then when you guys go to the restaurant, you meet the gay waiter. Yeah. That, that seemed like an homage to Beverly Hills Cop, I guess the Bronson Pinchot. Uh, oh, I don't know. It could have been his. I didn't know. I, that was written the way it was written. I didn't know that was the guy that was coming. And I found out later that he actually was in three of other uh, three other movies of Amir's. Oh, okay. Uh, Playing he, played, the kinda... he played an Indian. He played a doctor in Killing American Style, something like that. And for some reason, he's way over the top on that one. Um, but it was just funny to sit there and watch him. You know, and, and in that scene, even though it was the dialogue was written as it was, I was able to be a little bit more me. You can see the difference. Sometimes I'm very pissed off, rigid, going through a monologue or saying a line if Amir uh, had no body mics anymore. And he would want me to speak at this level. You know, that becomes so you horrible acting. another mic? Well, yeah. But, you know, as an actor, you're, you're fluctuating and you're, it sounds like you're just, it's horrible acting. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't horrible acting, but it just enhanced it. You didn't need any help. Exactly. So, uh, you know, those kind of things. And then I would just get more pissed off and then it just was what it was. But yeah, that day I tried to, the kitchen scene where Janice and I, and I say, oh, I jumped the fence and caught a chicken and I cooked it for you. That was all made up. Her and I, he said, oh, think of something to say here. So you can tell it doesn't match with the other dialogue. It's not great by itself either. I'm not saying that was fantastic. But it's like you're relaxed. And but I'm doing more of me. Yeah, it's more like, hey, you know, I jumped the fence. And I found, you know, it's not such ribbed robot talking like he wanted us to do. So even those small moments we enjoyed, but it didn't help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. What's it like working with Robert Zadar? It was great. We didn't really have that many scenes together. If you, if you look, it's just the fight scene mm -hmm. um, that we actually share screen time. But uh, the shootouts that you saw with the gang members and all that, and where uh, actually the scene where Robert is throwing the grenade or shooting the, the machine gun, that was done up at the ranch, which is where we fought uh, that final samurai. So he shot that out of sequence, so I saw Robert that day. Um, and then we re rehearsed a little bit with Gerald Ockhamore because neither of us had any samurai weaponry training at all. And right. it was literally a half hour of choreography or, or, Peter, or uh, Gerald would say, this is how you hold the sword. He would try to give us a history about samurai fighting. It's really a chess match. It's not a uh, a sword fight, which is what Amir showed. You know, he wanted to see the things yeah. clanging. Yeah, the movie only had 10 minutes of samurai uh, that, fighting. Yeah, but you see how he filmed it. It was such a colossal, and he's got his music <laughs> playing. I mean, it was beautiful the way he had it, just this cinematic epic fight that was ridiculous. Uh -huh. And then, you know, he cut to me in the wig, and then I didn't have the wig, you know what I mean? So it was just... Uh, 
it's just amazing me it's i've seen it now so many more times and with the live audiences which is just a great treat i've seen it once in the capacity where they do it they call it a, a b-movie bingo night uh-huh and the bingo cards are generic to any B-movie, not just Samurai Cop. So it'll say, High Fall. Well, you mark your box off. Three huh. men in a scene with a mustache. So they're, <laughs> it's making fun of the 80s, like you know, yeah. Chuck Norris and whatever. So I saw that in Seattle. I flew up there at the Seattle International Film Festival, showed it. The audience from start to finish just has a blast because it's like you're in a... Uh, South Central, not to be disparaging, but you know, people yelling out stuff to the screen. It's like, yeah. oh man, get this guy or whatever. So they have so much fun. And when you get a bingo, they stop the film. You run all the way down to the front. And if your card's right, then you get your little prize. If it's wrong, they don't start the movie till you walk all the way back. And sit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's an interactive, fun thing with the audience. This past week, they screened it at CineFamily with just the movie itself. And again, it's just laughs all the way through. A lot of people had seen it before or they brought a friend. Uh -huh. Which is kind of how this movie gets an audience. It's like, you've got to come with me. You have to see this movie. Right. I mean, and they've then, made the drinking games with my wig. Oh, so Anytime, if you're with game. friends, whoever says wig last has to take a shot. Uh -huh. I mean, you'd be plastered within the first 10 minutes. <laughs> it's so many wig shots. But so, again, that's what it is. It's just an amazing film on its own now that I keep telling, you know, Greg, we should just release it. With everything else out here now, I think it would get such a fun following because it's, you know, at the midnight showings, like oh, Rocky yeah. Horror. It seems like it's playing a lot. But I think he did that. He festivaled it about a year ago and to sold out crowds every single time. When Mark came out here at the Landmark, I guess it was like 600 people or went around the block at midnight to watch uh -huh. it. So, I mean, they are out there and they do have a blast with it. So, it's, the bar's set pretty high on the sequel, so... Hey, I just wanted to take a quick break. Go to our website, proudlyresents.com slash cop. You can find out how to donate to their Kickstarter campaign. We reviewed Samurai Cop a long time ago with Russell Steinberg and Lucas Stapleton, who introduced me to the film in the first place, which is pretty awesome. You can find a link to that review on uh, our website and on iTunes. If you go list of shows, it's, it'll pop up. If you go to iTunes, leave us a review. We've got some nice reviews lately. Appreciate it. And uh, also, if you want to just put up what episodes you like that you recommend people check out. Recently, I just sent out the second newsletter for Proudly Resents. And uh, it's a lot of fun to, to put out. And so I encourage people to go to our website again, sign up for it. If you live in the L.A. area, there's a cool theater, um, Cinefamily. They show a lot of cool films that we would cover here on the show. Coming up, and if you want to see Samurai Cop and you've missed their upcoming screening... Go to our website, you can buy a DVD on Blu-ray, which is awesome, plus I'm doing commentary. Enjoy the rest of the interview. Are you planning on doing any other acting besides that? Uh, you know, I, I, can't, I can't say no, but I wasn't really, again, I, I know what I can and can't do. Um, like I said, stand-up comedy is more me. You know, as a comic, you're just being you. Mm -hmm. As an actor, you have to become something else. So either I didn't get that in the transition, or I've likened it to, I definitely could, if somebody, you know, you have your Anthony Hopkins and your Tom Hanks that are fantastic actors and yeah. you've seen their work. But then you have your Jerry Seinfelds that was on Seinfeld, Roseanne, Tim Allen. These were comedians that were on sitcoms. Now, what they're doing is considered acting, but they're really just being themselves with some words that they were told to. You, do you understand what yeah, I'm yeah. saying? There's a difference. They're both acting, but one's really acting, one's not. So I'm more geared towards doing that type of Seinfeld-esque, something closer to what I do. I'm open to that because everybody says, don't look, 
you know, a gift horse in the mouth. Right. I mean, who would have ever thought when I came out here that this movie, 25 years later, could possibly open up some doors? I mean, we've heard Quentin Tarantino and uh, Robert Rodriguez, I guess, uh-huh. are, are fans of B genre, these grindhouse movies, and Samurai Cops in their top five. Wow. So if a guy like him sees it and he's like, oh my God, that's that guy, Samurai, I want him, let me give him a little bit part. Of yeah. course, you know, you can't. Yeah. So that I'm open to, but I don't think I would have that ability to be considered as somebody that could really carry an A-list or, or, or a big movie, but a character actor, fine, you know. So did you try to pursue, what happened when you were pursuing acting after you shot Samurai Cop? What happened next? Um, then it became that game that everybody gets involved in out here, uh-huh. going to auditions, trying to make connections, and I just thought, man, this is such bullshit, and, and I think I got in my own way, good or bad. I just didn't want to do that. I don't want to drive all over town, here's my picture, Stay your name. And you say a couple lines. You know, it's a scratcher yeah. lottery. It just, it seemed, and I was trying to raise a family, and you got to work a job, and you don't have time and the freedom to do that. Um, I felt through connections, and of course, working with Stallone, I had met a lot of people and made a lot of connections, and I thought maybe that would open doors um, if things ever come up. Like, for example, I think they're doing My Greek, Big Fat Greek Wedding 2. Uh-huh. And Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson used to uh, work out in the gym where Sly worked out, where I worked out with George at the Santa Monica Bodybuilding Center. And I knew Rita before, just before Tom hit big, right after, I think, Forrest Gump. So we have that relationship. So it's like, oh, I'd love to be able to go find her and say, hey, Rita, it's me. Is there any way I can, you know, that is how I thought you get your opportunities or it's a better way to get into You have the opportunity to do that. You can do I that. I still could. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that's the thing. Obviously, Sly wasn't going to give me any parts in a movie, so Why I not? knew that. Well, it's just, more, especially if you worked for him, he, he was also looking out for me saying, you don't want to be attached to me. Obviously, there's already a slight resemblance. He always uh-huh. says slight, and most people are confused. <laughs> but I get that. I mean, when we were younger, we looked the same. Now, I don't think we look anything the same. I mean, right. I've made the comments, and he's been very open about his uh, HGH use. I was going to say, there's a big difference. And there's so much side effects that I feel from that. And I just said, now he looks to me more like the Italian version of Shrek is because his <laughs> head is so fucking big, which is a side effect. Your, your cranium that I'm seeing, and yeah, there's yeah. been research, your hands, your knuckles, your bone structure, endochronically, I think it alters you. And uh-huh. I'm not taking anything away from him. I'm just saying yeah. that there, there is no resemblance like it used to be. So would you guys get, is that how you got your job with him? No, I actually just had a friend that um, I found out that's the gym that he trained out here in Santa Monica, I went there and then I just happened to hit it off and get along with one of his bodyguards who knew a friend of mine from Oregon that I, cause I, when I came here, I was 270 pounds and that's what uh-huh. I did with security and bodyguard work. And we struck up a good conversation. I just happened to be at the right time in Sly's organization where he was weeding out the uh, off duty police officers cause he liked them cause they could carry weapons, but they weren't really conducive in crowds. They didn't have personalities cause it's a finesse Right, you don't want to go to the gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not even that. It's just, you know how they're trained. They're trained to be very, and I'm not mm-hmm. trying to blank at all of them, but they're very uh, regimented. Uh-huh. And you need a personality, especially when you're around the biggest movie star in the world. You have to be able to deal with fans and politely say, oh, I'm, you know, he'd love to sign, but he's got to go. Where a cop would be, no, get away. And you right. just antagonize him, sometimes create a problem. Because you, you have to remember your job there is to keep Sly out of situations where fights will break out or there could be litigation if you start punching somebody. You know, you're, you're basically a high-priced babysitter uh-huh. and you're a personal friend. It's kind of like Elvis and his guys, Red and all his bodyguards. It's a little clique of guys that initially an inner circle that keeps Sly comfortable in public and also protected. So um, by making that connection with Gary, Sly's you know, top bodyguard at the time, 
and them feeling comfortable, all right, he's not a stalker or he's not, you know, we don't have to worry about him. And then you yeah. slowly come on board and then you just continue to work and then your relationship builds obviously with Sly, which we had a good relationship. I didn't stay super close with him. When he left, you, you kind of moved on and that was it? Yeah, a couple of the other bodyguards above me who I considered the main guys, Boyo, Gorick, Mike DeLuca, had moved on or Sly was had some disagreements with him. And then Gary had asked me to step up and I thought, no, I want to be available to do what I want to do as an actor in a comic and go on auditions. I don't want to work full time. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was kind of pissed off. Like, why'd you ever take the job? And I said, you know, if I would have told you I was an actor when you first met me, you never would have hired me because right. you automatically think, oh, he's just trying to get somewhere. So uh, I just basically thanked Sly for the opportunity and, and explained why I wanted to move on. And he knew because I, I, I would do my funny stuff around the office. I imitated half the staff because they all had little intricate, you know, parts of their personality I could pick up on. So he knew that's what I wanted to do. But, and I just said, you know, I want to try and go out there and get at least one millionth of a percent of what you got as far as, you know, because yeah. it's, you're living in his lifestyle. What is that like? like going like it's amazing going, yeah it's, going to a big it, mansion from your apartment yeah you know? which is yeah i lived on overland pico and overland and he was up on in benedict uh, canyon he was renting a time uh, at that time a home from uh, kirk Kerkorian. so it's the top of a beautiful quiet you know serene uh, hilltop in beverly hills and then he had his beach house in malibu so either location was just very and at that time like i said he was top of the world i mean he started the downward, you know, with Stopper, My Mom Will Shoot. And uh -huh. I mean, I was there for Stopper, My Mom Will Shoot, Lock Up, uh, Tango and Cash, um, Oscar, uh -huh. and then just the pre-production of Rocky Five. So, you oh, know, so you, I was there. You right was. Yeah. So, I mean, it was fun to be on a working set, like I've said in other interviews, as, a, as an actor, to really be on stage, see how a, a very high, you know, well-done production runs. Um, you know, because there's a lot of BS in Hollywood and to really see who are the key players, where you need to be. And that's right. Oh, you cut right to the chase. You're at the biggest As far guy. as learning, yeah, yeah to yeah. being exposed to. Otherwise, I'm just some kid off the potato truck from Oregon doing like everybody else, go to the dumb auditions that turn out to be for porno movies or, you know, because you don't know any better. Uh -huh. um, so now it's like, these are the major casting people. These are the big shot producers. So I'm being introduced to Chuck and Larry Gordon at the time were big, Joel Silver, uh -huh. uh, Andre Chica, or whatever that director he did for... Um, Slice movies, just top-notch guys. And then I would accidentally run into them on auditions or get to a point, and they'd just say, oh, that's right, you're Slice's bodyguard. So then I started to think, oh, shit. Now, right, that didn't help. Yeah, so now it's like, no, I don't want to wait tables because I'm clumsy, but this is what I do to make a living, <laughs> but this is what I really enjoy doing, which right. is comedic acting. And like I said, I came from Oregon thinking I was going to be the next John Candy. That was my goal. Funny, oh, really? Big, big dude. No one, there was nobody out there like me. Uh-huh. And, and, and funny. So I thought 270 pound funny guy. Great. You know, but yeah. it didn't work out that way. Cause <laughs> as soon as I started working for Sly, I changed my diet and I just got completely ripped up. And, and, and that was all from working with Sly? Um, no, I was getting married. I started with him April of 88 and then I was getting married June of 88. And I thought, let me lose some weight here before the wedding. And I lost like 30 pounds, talked to a guy in the gym and he gave me a diet. And then being around Sly right after Rambo three, he was shredded. And I yeah. just thought, fuck man, that's, that's awesome. And then I just started really changing my diet and trying to get as best physically because I've always had worked out with weights, but that diet really is the key. And then the more I lost, the more that comparison came up. Did and, that you know, bother him? Kind of look. I I think so. There was a couple incidences where people mistook me for him. On it, you know. And again, you can I can kind of get it. And a lot of people think, oh, your ego. Who do you think you are? You look like him. Mean, no, but like, like you no. said, you do look like him. And there's you're little, both yeah. And especially built. most people assume most celebrities are taller. Sly's obviously five nine and a half, five ten. I'm six three. So they, they maybe thought he was, and sometimes thought he was uh, Frank Stallone. 
if we were in public. Oh, he must have loved that. So you know what I mean? <laughs> that I doesn't would, help I your job see, any. You know, when you're around yeah. someone, you can sense some like, oh, geez, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, he looks like me. And it's like, come on, I'm not a troll. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's kind of a compliment, I guess, but and that's kind of another reason why I thought I would back away because I didn't want to damage that a door avenue. If I left on good terms, then if I ever did anything, I could be able to come back, hey, how you doing, you know. Have you heard from him or anyone from that time about this film? No, no, nobody even knows. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, unless his daughters have come across, you know, but again, it's, it's, I, I'm curious to see what he would think, but I think the last time I saw him was like 99 um, in, in the gym. When you worked for Sly, was there any instances where you had any kind of conflict or is it always kind of cool with him? Mm, yeah, it was always, everybody was always polite. Uh, I think when Richard Crenna received his star on the Walk of Fame uh, right during Rambo 3, uh, just before it was released, there were some fans when we went in front of the theater that uh-huh. were kind of pushy and hands-on. And, and there were some threats out where there were some terrorists that had needlepoint things. So oh, that, it was a hands-off, don't let anybody touch Sly. For that reason. For that reason, yeah. And no, I, again, there were some rumors when he was in Israel that, oh, let's, let's kill this American hero Rambo. I mean, there was just all wow. kinds of weird stuff that was going on. So uh-huh. we were told no one is to touch Sly. And there was a lady that was being a little overzealous and her hand came out and it was swatted down and she just took offense to it. Now, Boyo, I think, was the one that did it. Uh, Boyo, again, is the Russian in Rambo 2 uh, that was the guy that tortured Sly. He's the big, strong... He was an actor and Sly kept him on after that to be one of his bodyguards. So... Boyo was very serious about his job, and he was just, bam, slams the lady's hands down. And I happened to be there, so I had to, as they move along with Sly, I had to quickly step in and buffer that and apologize and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, know, try to make something up. And that's your job, because that girl could start getting crazy, and that could spark somebody else to start yelling, and then it's negative publicity around Sly. You know what I mean? So it's it's an image-conscious business, and that job is, you know, be polite. Sly may say, I don't have time to sign autographs. So... I got to get out of here. Okay, we'll be the bad guy. As soon as Sly comes out, can I have your autograph? Sure, no problem. Here, come here. And then we have to say, no, 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 he doesn't have time. He's like, oh, no, it's all right. No, no, Sly, we don't, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. that game. People are young at you, but that's your job. Correct. And yeah. you make him stay, you know. So that's the finesse. That's the job that, that uh, is entailed, not just so much beating people up, because it's really not that. I mean, you, and a lot of us were trained like Secret Service. We're really focusing on the crazy, zeal, overzealous fan, which has obviously become even more prevalent nowadays. And the paparazzi are a whole different ball. Oh, yeah, you, Back you then, got to avoid that. Jesus, I can't imagine. And that's probably the reason why I never wanted to continue acting or be famous. I couldn't put up with the fame. Uh-huh. I would love the money. And I know a lot of people say, I'm an actor because I love the art. It's like, I love it for the money. <laughs> I mean, these guys... You saw the easy... You saw get on that. Well, it's not that. These TV shows, once they go to syndication, you just make a fortune. And it's yeah. like, that's nice to have that security. And then you can go out and just keep working or not. There's a lot of actors that were very popular in the 70s and 80s that were leading men or whatever. And then once that stops and you're no longer the flavor of the month... I've seen guys selling cars. I mean, that's hard. I think that would be hard to deal with. Uh, what I, did you wind up doing after you decided to I just stayed within the executive protection industry for a while and then uh, ended up traveling down a, a wrong path, hanging around the wrong guys. Can you talk about that? Or Yeah, it was just stupid uh, decisions. I was just trying to... Uh, uh, the, the, the one key incident was the, uh, one of the guys that we actually... Uh, I worked for. He asked me to set uh, a team together of 20 guys to work security for his establishment. Uh, in downtown LA and we worked for him for about six months and then he decided we all cost too much and he fired everybody so me being young and idiot was pissed off and thought well who are you gonna hire and he thought I got a couple janitors they'll just watch the place and the guy had some very very expensive 
Thank what you. kind of things? He was uh, Dr. Gene Scott. I don't know if you're familiar. Uh-huh. He's the guy that used to be on the cable with the cigar and his glasses, and he would talk about, he was a televangelist, not a televangelist, a theologist about, but anyway, I, I felt he was kind of a shady guy anyway, but that, that's beside so the that point. Just, that was your justification. It was just me, my ego, oh, I'll show you how good your security is. Again, taking the same knowledge that you have to protect a facility, you could obviously turn that around and know the weaknesses. So I knew his security staff was a weak spot because he didn't have guys like us that were thinking like me that you know what I mean so it's a vicious cycle and I just came up with this concoction to go take one of his most valuable possessions which is, which is a, uh, a painting that he had in his cathedral in the lobby it was the old United Artists Theater downtown LA oh, okay. near Olympic and Broadway and uh, I concocted this ridiculous uh, heist and I don't know if in my mind I've made it like a movie besides a revengeful thing but I mean when you look back on it, it's like who really gives a shit go get another fucking job yeah but I was like, nope, I'm going to show this guy. And, and so we went in and we took the painting and had it for about three months. And then uh, we were trying to figure out now how do we give it back? Because we didn't, we didn't want it. It was just, it got well, the What was news. the plan once you got the, the painting? Just to, I think uh, the other guy that had done it with me was kind of like, oh, how great your security is now. You know, I mean, it was it's just <laughs> stupid. You were, yeah, there was you no point. Because most people are like, oh, you took it for the money. And it's like, you can't steal a painting and make any money off of it because you don't have the provenance, which is like a title to a car. Uh-huh. Unless you can show who owned it, it's worthless. And who's going to sell this big, giant Rembrandt? Rembrandt apparently started the painting and a student finished it, so it had some value. The problem I had was that he received from his parish. He kept telling them, I'm not going to talk anymore till I get $2 million to buy this painting. Wow. Well, it turns out in the end, the painting was only worth $100,000. So He laundered the money. Not so much that, but he deceived people. And again, it's not my place to, to put judgment on him. Right. But in the end, it worked for me because with the police officers, once they found out what it was worth, said, we're going to have to let the public know. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Uh, maybe I won't press such hard charges. or You know what I mean? His yeah. tone changed. The, the night it was taken, the next day he was like, I want them to get the ramrods or whatever the old biblical torture was, getting a stake <laughs> up your rectum. So eventually, the, you know, they found, um, I think my, my partner, crime partners, I guess I could call them that, uh, his girlfriend had gotten in a fight with him and he had the pos- painting in his possession and she called the cops, hey, that painting you're looking for. Wow. And then once we were finally arrested and everything came out, it turns out that there was just a huge investigation. I mean, Dr. Gene Scott apparently had some very strong ties with the city of LA and they put the two top homicide detectives on this case. We've got to find this painting. And they thought that uh, two high top notch art thefts uh, guys were in LA because there was another theft days earlier in Europe and they thought it was the same crew. Oh, so I mean it turns cool. out it's just some idiot actor and his buddy who knew the soft spot just did this. Yeah I mean but you know I, I'm not knowing all this why we have this I don't realize <laughs> so when they catch us and they find out it's us even the detectives are like oh my god you guys are fucking idiots and so they kind of stepped up and said look they're just a couple meatheads and but it did not change the fact and what I really like to make emphasis on is the gentleman that was actually there as the janitor that was security. When I came busting through that door and I'm pointing an empty weapon, because I, I knew I wouldn't need bullets, it doesn't matter. This guy thinks this gun's loaded and he's going to die. Yeah. That's fucked up. That's something that you learn while you're sitting in a five by seven cell um, when you really have time to look back and see not so much your egotistical, vain shit that you're doing, thinking of me, 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 oh, I'm just going to show this guy. This guy was doing nothing but trying to make a living, probably making six bucks an hour. He's traumatized for life. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? And that's what's fucked up. And, and that's, that's what I take away from that. Everyone's like, oh, what an amazing heist. You pulled it off in a half hour, nobody caught you. Yeah, that's, that's a moot point. And there was another guy that actually, just by coincidence, had happened to show up 
at the time when we were there and he let him in and I guess he brought him lunch. So that guy got involved. He happened wow. to be there too. So all of a sudden here's these two guys. It was strange the way that it went down. The guy described the, the, the robbers, myself and the other guy is a five foot four Persian. I don't know why that name came up again. He said the guy definitely had an accent and he said, but the other guy was uh, one of the guys from the Rodney King, you know, uh, Ted Brasino was one of the police officers. Uh-huh. And I hope I'm not legally putting him in any problem. But he worked for us on the security staff for a while until Dr. Gene Scott found out that he was there and then he fired him. So uh-huh. these people thought right off, I know it was him. He came in in a cop stance because I had, you know, training. So when I came was in- Was that part of the idea was to make people think? No, that was just me doing what I was doing. Think I'm in a movie. This is what I would do in a movie. You point the gun, you stand like this. But they started thinking all these things, but we can't approach him right now and question him because he's involved in the civil case. So you see what I'm saying? So there's all this backstory going on wow. that I don't even know. And um, So was this 94 or was during This Rodney? is uh, the night Magic Johnson uh, announced to the world he had AIDS, uh-huh. uh, which was November 7th, I believe, or 9th of 1990, November of 90. Oh, okay. So or I think it's not. I want to make sure I have that year right. My oh, daughter, you're right. It's I a, think it's 90. Or 91. Maybe it's 91. I'm sorry. Yeah, because yeah. my daughter was born in 92 because they caught us in February. I surrendered the next day. I, my friend didn't pick up my call during the day. So I thought, uh oh, I wonder if something's up. Sure enough, I called central booking in LA County and then they said, yes, he was booked earlier today on uh, armed robbery. So I thought, okay, fuck it, we're done. I call my family, which is an embarrassing thing to go through. I get an attorney. I said, here's the situation. We arrange surrender. You go down. Um, I bailed out right away and then we went through the procedures that you do and I basically pled guilty from day one. I'm not trying to hide, you know, even though my attorney says, oh, if your guy friend wouldn't have opened his mouth, they never could have pinned you. They had no fingerprints. They had nothing, no hair. So if you hadn't called, they never would have pinned you? If or if my he friend, yeah, hadn't, he's saying. hadn't had, had oh. what happened was, and I don't know what the circumstances were, but he had my weapon at his house. I don't know if he was at the firing range. So they, they traced that back. So they knew who that gun belonged to. So already I'm going to be implicated. And I thought, you know what, whatever. I, it was a stupid idea. I feel bad. I convinced this guy to do this with me. He was just a friend that was actually in the movie, uh-huh. uh, Samurai Cop. Who did and I don't, I don't mention him because I don't want, you know, unless he Oh, you don't want to say. Yeah. But uh, I was think he on the bad guy side? Was he? Yeah, he was just one of the bad guys yeah. that was in the, yeah, in the movie. But, uh, and great, great guy. Fantastic guy. Um, Sure, he listened to you. He, he well, hung yeah, but you know what I mean. Bad I, choice in women. I just got him caught up in this ridiculous. Oh, this is going to be a great heist. This is a, like a, doing a movie, and he was a stunt man. And and uh, but he had a great great life before that. And we actually both went off to prison together. And what the sentencing was, they sent us up to Wasco State Prison for a ninety day op, and that's kind of a procedure where they decide whether or not you are going to be a career criminal or mm-hmm. this is a one time stupid thing. So again, I've talked about in interviews that it's a tricky place to be because you're in prison. You can't be Mr. Sweetie Pie. Oh, I'm not a threat, but you're here with killers and rape. You know, I mean, this is a hard. So what course. did you do? I I played the game of I'm a I'm an animal, and I was lucky. I never got in any situations where I had to write up for fighting or anything where the guards would say, "Up, oh, he was a troublemaker. He joined up with the." Uh, Nazi lowriders. But you were able to scare people enough to leave you alone. Not so much that, because like I've said, in that atmosphere, you could be the baddest motherfucker in the world, but if if four or five guys want to take you down, they're going to take you down. I mean, they can physically overpower you, and and sometimes they do that to prove a point. So I think I came in there with, uh, from a point of respect, obviously physically I was the way I was, but I didn't walk around saying, I'll kick your ass. Right, right. So it's that fine line, and then also playing that fine line with the correctional officers, not letting them know that you think that you know, you're 
you know, badass. And then again, you can't make friends with the correctional officers because then the inmates are, oh, you're a snitch. You know what I mean? It's just a weird world. How long were you there? To be in. That was um, almost three months we were there. I think we Holy went up crap. there from June to November. They did our evaluations. You see a psychiatrist and a, sociolo- or so, a psychologist and a psychiatrist both evaluate you, write up a report, send it back to the judge. The reports came back. The guy I was with, they said, this guy's going to be in trouble again. This other guy, Matt, he's fine. So, what so they, here we are, I don't know, 20, 20 years later, I end up getting in trouble again. So that obviously wasn't that accurate. What happened to 20 years later? Um, that was just another stupid thing. I, I think when um, the, uh, what, what's now known as identity theft was, was big in the 98, 99. And I had a guy that was like, hey, I got some way to make some quick cash. Can I use your name and open some things? And, and I knew what was going on. And he was doing some day trading and maybe taking money from one account and trading under mine. You know what I mean? So that yeah. kind of shit. And eventually that blew up. And so I ended up going and I have to do two years on that one that time. So you did? That one, yeah. That one I ended up doing. And what it was was I think I got sentenced to 16 months, but because I had a strike from the first one, that armed robbery, which is what it was, even though it was a ridiculous, goofy, what we think. It, it's well, an armed robbery. Guns. You came yeah. in with a gun. Come on. If you go in with your finger under your shirt yeah. and you think it's a gun, it's, it's a gun. I didn't know all that. And, there, and we were looking at 20 years or 10 years, five for the robbery, five for the gun. So, I mean, to get out of that case yeah. after that 90-day op with a six-month sentence in county jail, that's a gift. And then I ended up fucking it up 10 years later, being an idiot again, making poor choices. Uh, again, things might not have been going the way I wanted in my life. And, it, you know, I start thinking, oh, here's a good way to make some money and then maybe keep trying to act. You know what I mean? Just stupid decisions. Right. And, and that was in my 30s. The first one was in my 20s. That was in my 30s. So, so now in my 50s, pretty... I'm fine. But uh, <laughs> all I got to deal with is Samurai Cop. But uh, Do you feel like it's good to be open about it? I mean, it, it's pretty yeah, amazing you're so open about it. And, and it's not from a braggadocious point of view, but it's to kind of let people know, you know, life is what it is. Because uh-huh. a lot of people love my film now, or they think it's great, or you know, and they they don't really know me. Some of them knew me from the movie only and thought I was a meathead. Yeah. Through these interviews, you get to kind of know a little bit more about me. And these fans are so overzealous and investigative. I mean, they actually went to the grave of the guy's family that was Matt Hannon to uh-huh. make sure, and they're checking public records. So I knew eventually if this. Which it is. Come out, which yeah. is where it is now. People can start. I mean, there's one girl that's in the cast, Janice Farley, that still had not been found. One fan has found her. And he, the way he found her was unbelievable. Her name is completely different. Uh-huh. Lives a completely different life. They've been in touch with her. She's extremely hesitant to get involved. I don't know if you said, you saw the movie, Janice is my love interest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, her performance, I feel, is fine. She's a great actress. She, yeah, she's one of the better parts. But it's those three minutes of nudity that if she's, got, if she's got kids I don't know I mean she hasn't she basically uh, it's not said yes or no to be involved but these are her concerns kind of like all everybody else is like dude I don't want to be associated with that movie <laughs> it's like well come here look and see what's going on it's a different fan base they really love the movie they're not mocking you know I mean they are obviously mocking but it's in a lovable, lovable way what was it like the first time you were in the audience and you uh, saw people making fun of them laughing at the movie and Oh, by then it didn't matter. Like I said, I had so many years from t- 2009 till now seeing comments online with funny things that I was already in on the joke. So and, I never heard you feel like I believe that. The, no, no. Because I, I have nothing. Obviously, like I said, when I first finished the movie, I thought, oh, this is supposed to be an action movie. I knew it was horrible. I didn't think it was funny. 
Uh-huh. I would laugh at a couple things that I did, but I didn't think it. the movie as a whole. I didn't notice all the production flaws that everybody else was talking about, the edits and, you know, film, film students have this in their class. They study of how not to make a movie because of the quick cuts, the random cuts, the colors off, the this, the... Uh-huh. I'm just thinking the dialogue is ridiculous. Yeah, like the head on the piano. Is that... Well, I mean, you know, that's ridiculous. What does yeah. that mean? But it became <laughs> such a class. I want his head on this piano. And, and to touch base on Gerald, Gerald we just found too. Gerald, I mean, not Gerald, I'm sorry, Cranston. We didn't know his name, the guy that plays Fujiyama. Okay. He was an unknown actor. I have always represented that Amir found him in a mall was my, what I remembered. Uh, it turns out they found him through Facebook. And when I asked him and he spoke the other night at a screening, he said he was having dinner with his wife in Little Tokyo. And Amir had approached him and said, I'm doing a movie, would you like to be in it? And he's like, get out of here, dude. Because he thought he was like, you know, those people that come up to you in the mall. Oh, you have a great look. We have these acting classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's telling him, blow, blow off. Get out of here. And he just kept hounding him and hounding him. He goes, listen, I need you for one day. You were the biggest star in the movie or, you know, it's the bad guy part. And so finally Cranston said, sure, no problem. He's not an actor. No. But he did a better job acting than I did, uh-huh. in my opinion. And I think he did quite well. So he's been out of the limelight. We found him. We approached him. His initial thing was, oh, hell no. I don't want to. Are you crazy? That movie was ridiculous. We exposed him to what's going on. We actually had him come to the screening the other night. He spoke. Now he gets it. It's yeah. fun. And it would be nice for him to do a cameo because that's what we're trying to do is get as many of the original guys in the cameo uh, positions for the sequel. But um, What about the sergeant? Um, the guy yelled at the two of you. Oh, Dale Cummings. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's passed. He passed away, I think, in 06. Uh-huh. Great guy. Uh, I worked with him just that one day for about five hours. We shot all those scenes. But I think he was just an actor. And, he, and uh, Jimmy... I think uh, that plays one of the cops in the movie, knew him and knows his history. He's been in a lot of stuff, but uh-huh. I thought he stole the show. He was absolutely he was fantastic. And some of that dialogue that he says is what Amir wrote, but the motherfuckers uh, and his emphasis and his, he kind of improved again when he stands up and points and says, get out of here. And it's that long two, three, four beats. As a professional, he was waiting for Amir to say cut. <laughs> so, when, used it. so when Amir didn't, then he sits back down, and then he thinks maybe he'll say cut. Now he doesn't, so then he closes his eye. You know what I mean? So yeah. to see that progression as an actor, to watch what he did, brilliant. But again, uh, and he was fantastic. And then, like everybody said, they love his character. No cops say that. I just want you to kill every motherfucker, and I don't care if I lose my badge. <laughs> so it was really a beautiful performance, and it, it's sad that he, he, you know, he would be there. But uh, those are some of the fun days that I loved you know, being on set to work with somebody like that. So the partner, Mark, is he an actor? How did he come? He was a, uh, apparently, yeah, he's a very, very uh, well-trained New York actor. Uh, he came out here, uh, had been done a lot of theater, and again, was trying to get footage and tape as an actor. And he came in the office, same thing, walked in. He's six foot five. I think he's a couple of inches taller than I am. And Amir loved his booming voice, and he just hired him on the spot, too. So, I mean, and he, I think that's when Amir's thinking that lethal weapon. Danny Glover, older guy, younger so it worked out great. Him and I hit it off great on set. And you know from reading the script, there's, there's a lot of racial undertones that Amir had put in. I don't know if intentionally or just his culture, you know, the references to the black gift. Yeah. That could be construed as, that's kind of, you know. Come well, on. it was. I don't know construed. It well, was. <laughs> uh, but I mean, to say in Amir, I mean, yeah. we're thinking from our point of view, but, um, and Mark was a good sport about that. He actually, and he's basically said in some interviews and private conversations with me, he gave me the permission to play on that because it's an awkward thing with a white guy and a black guy and I, I know what's going on and he made it comfortable saying, dude, it's all right, let's just go for it. If he's going to go there, let's go for it. So mm-hmm. all that, 
putting his hand out. Man, Char- Captain's going to burn my ass. Yeah, charcoal black, right on. You know, the, yeah. that guy, he put his hand out. That wasn't in the script. So then it was like, right on. You know, so we just started <laughs> embellishing. So he's a great sport like that. Um, and he still hasn't aged at all. I don't know if you've seen any no, of the footage. No, he looks great. So yeah. that's what's kind of, I think, interesting for the sequel is that people can see him and I similar to the way we looked then. Obviously, I'm not 235 pounds of solid muscle dude anymore. I'm more leaned up. But just to have us the same now in a different situation, I think it'll be interesting. Because that's what I wonder about. It. What do the fans really expect? There's so many different things that they would want to see. So it's a tough spot to be in. And Greg's keeping it tight, you know, close to his vest. That's great. Um, just writing the script up. And then obviously we'll just go in and do, you know, whatever he wants. But I mean, it's just, he's really a great fan of Amir and this movie. So he's, he's invested a lot of his own money. So, I mean, it's just nice to see somebody that's really you know, dedicated as he is here with the sequel. Um, he, he just really wants to make a good movie because it's a tricky thing to do because you can't copy what really happened. It was, is the sequel going to be, uh, which you can go on Kickstarter and donate money? You're almost there. You're probably there. I think by they're time. at like 26%. Yeah, Kickstarter's very odd. I think he basically did it. There was a lot of, uh, of the funding was already in place. Uh-huh. I think the Kickstarter was his way because there were so many fans that had so much interest that I guess where you can, you know, auction off T-shirts or autograph this or people if they wanted to actually be in the movie there's some fans that go how could i say a line or be an extra sure and i think that's and he was just going to use those funds i think for um any added expenses cgi um, special effects mark frazier actually lives in florida so if we were going to bring him out and rehearse that money kind of would go toward you know what i mean it's Uh it's not taking away from the production budget because you really want to put as much money into the movie uh, the first one as possible, but again, it's the uh, the story and so on. So the Kickstarter, like I said, I think it's got twenty eight days left. So and I I for a while was taking it to heart. Like what? There's only two hundred eight people. Uh-huh. We're only at thirteen grand. There's nobody out there. But the, a lot of the market research that's been done. I mean, there, there's so many fans out there. At least a quarter million that they found. But if you think about, most people don't. It's kind of like voting. They uh-huh. can agree with a candidate, and some guy will put a lawn sign in his. Everyone else is going to vote for that guy, but yeah. they're not going to put the lawn sign out. So right. one person out of 80,000. So you know what I mean? They're there, but I was looking at it. Oh, my God, what are we doing? There's nobody here to watch. And he kind of calmed me down and said, no, no, that's this that is kind of what it is. But And I've heard there's a lot of guys that have emailed me that are want to contribute big money, which they're going to do. But I guess they said in past Kickstarters, when you put the money in and you get close to the total, most people won't contribute. So oh. I don't know if it's that kind so of like philosophy going on. Yeah, well, it's just that if they put it in now, we'd be at 50 grand and people would say, oh, what, why should I get something? Unless yeah. they want a piece of it, like a t-shirt. So I, I think that's what's going on. I mean, we'll see. we got 28 days, but there's just too many people that really want to see it done. And so I think the money, I'm not even worried. I know they'll hit the total, but there's been a lot of people jumping on board these uh, named actors kind of like sharknado took on uh-huh and the second one people are like oh that's funny i want to be let me have a little cameo so that kind of can you say who uh, are some of the people oh man no i think some of them i can't because they're big names but i uh what's her name um uh, Bai Ling. do you know her uh-huh asian she came to the screening the other night sweet girl i'd never met her and she's like i'm on board oh that's and great she pulls me aside and oh my you were so handsome why didn't you keep acting and i I, did you see my performance? And it's <laughs> he like, didn't watch the I movie. said, I'm very flattered. I don't feel handsome. But she's like, no, 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 this will be good. You and I will have seen, we will have love, and we will fight. And I'm like, oh, it's great. You know. So yeah. again, this is the momentum that's going on. And I'm thinking, I don't know how many characters he's going to have in this movie to fit in all of these cameos. Is there any dialogue? You know, I don't know. But I mean, it's just becoming a really fun you know, adventure as we go along. And he wants to start shooting right here in November because uh, that's kind of my free time. I think Mark will fly out. But uh are you still doing security? 
No, I ended up after I came out of prison, I met a guy when I was in there and he said, hey, look, when you come out, if you ever want to get into some work, this industry, and he worked in the uh, convention industry, the guys that put in the trade shows, uh-huh. you know, like E3, Comic-Con. There's a union that actually builds these exhibits, beautiful exhibits. Um, and it was similar to, uh, I had also worked as a grip. I had a union card that I got from a friend of mine that ran uh, Carsey Warner Productions, Courtney Conti. The problem I had with that job was I hated being on stages and, and I likened it to an alcoholic that serves drinks. And as a bartender, he'd yeah. rather be fucking pounding them down, getting drunk. So to me, be on stage, see people working, reminding me of my dreams when I first came out. It's like, oh man, this is hard to do. So I switched over to that uh, convention uh, union uh, in 2001. And uh, I basically work here in Southern California as a union guy, as a foreman for uh, uh, one of the main uh, general contractors. And I'm kind of a liaison between the exhibitors and the union talent, picking the crew and, you know, running all of San Diego, Anaheim, LA, and so on. So it's fun to do that. It's a you know, great job. And it's, I liked it because you, you come in, you work four or five days, the show opens, two or three days off, then the show closes, you take it down in two days. You know, so you yeah. have breaks. It's not a nine to five. And it's great money. I mean, it pays, you know, double time overtime. It's a union job. I'm a yeah. union guy, which that's is, you know, I've got three union cars, Screen Actors Guild, the uh, local lady, and 831. So, but that's what I've been doing. And that's why I said those guys have no idea. Because obviously, A, my oh, name's different. They, uh, knew, they knew that I did acting years ago. But is it under Brian? Is that it? Uh, no, it's under Matt Hannon. But those names, you know, they don't know anything about Samurai Cop or Matt Hannon. Mm-hmm. They know Matthew Caritas. And if you Google my name, nothing comes up. I mean, now it may start crossing over because I've said in the last couple months. But, you know, with the bikini that I'm wearing, I can see that just being on my office door. Oh, or, you know what I mean? Which, yeah, yeah. So I'm waiting for that to happen. Uh, we've had kind of a slow time for the last couple months. Actually, as this has all been going on, we haven't been doing much, but we'll start right back up here in mid-September. So I'm waiting to see if the word spread. One of my friends was trying to be nice and, and sent a blanket email to everybody about the Kickstarter. And I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm just trying to get some. I'm like, dude, I don't need anybody. To know. Don't worry about it. I don't need the. So I don't know if that caught on or if people didn't recognize the name and didn't really pay attention to the trailer and see it was me. Yeah. I mean, I'm waiting. Otherwise, I got some huge surprise coming around the corner once I go back to work. But uh, eventually they'll cross. And it is what it is. Like I said, I don't mind it. It's funny now. And I've gone on enough interviews and, and explained kind of what was going on because I didn't want people to think we really thought we were making you know, gone with the wind, gone with the wind or, you know, good fellow. I mean, come on. We, we knew we were in on it uh, like everybody else, but we just did the job and finished. Uh, so how do people reach you now for a lot of them? Just email me on that, that, that B Machiavelli eight at AOL.com when they have questions. Otherwise they, uh, we chit chat back and forth on YouTube. Cause I'm not a Facebook guy. You I know there's a Facebook page up. No, none of that. Yeah. I just, cause I just thought, you know, who's pompous. Hey, here's what I have to say. It's like, I don't, I mean, I know here I'm diarrhea of the mouth, <laughs> but it's a specific thing. Yeah, but yeah. I, I can't tweet out, uh, you know, little comments and so on. But uh, Facebook, there is a Facebook page up that somebody put up. That's not me. It's Matt Hannon. And I think they're, my daughter's like, let me put one up for you. So I don't know if I'll do that mainly for the movie. Cause even, uh, Greg says, you know, it's a nice place for people to really, I guess Facebook is great to you know have communication because otherwise it's imdv posts that i do or youtube and that's kind of narrow one. all right so on the website this is for the audience we'll have uh, connections on how to meet ramat and yeah. how to pay uh how to be part of the kickstarter for samurai cop 2 and to buy samurai cop 1 yeah uh, if they want right. to go and then cinema epic i don't know what uh, uh, greg's uh, website is too but yeah i think we'll have all that too. yeah that's fine yeah, all that stuff's on we do a, uh, like a station id uh manhattan you're listening to proudly resents yeah Hey everybody, this is Matt Hannon and you're listening to Proudly Presents.
That's awesome. Thanks, man. We're out of time for this interview. Thanks for listening to Proudly Resents. Make a comment or suggest a film at reachadam at mac.com or on our comment line. You ready? Get a pencil. <laughs> I'll wait. Okay. Got one? Okay. 646 481 547 Six. Keep it clean and short. We might air it. Join us on Facebook or be old school and go to our website, proudlyresents.com. If you like the show, put the episode up on your Twitter, Facebook, stumble upon, dig, you know, all those things. Tell a friend, I'm Eddie Pepitone, and my Twitter account is at Eddie Pepitone.